What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to RizzoCast, episode number 18. Uh, if you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you find your podcast, or on YouTube, welcome in. Today we are joined by outfielder and first baseman in the San Francisco Giants organization, Chris Shaw. How you doing, Chris? How you doing, Stephen? Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, so crazy times, obviously, we live in. Um, the whole COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there's been a, some other stuff going on. How have you handled kind of like dealing with this pandemic and going about your life in kind of like an abbreviated way? Yeah, I think that, you know, there are obvious adjustments to um, just about every part of my life. Um, you know, early on when we got back from spring training, just kind of trying to figure out where you could and couldn't go um, to get your work in was a little difficult. You know, I'm in the Northeast, so I don't have the luxury of being able to go outside at the end of March, early April. It's still 45 degrees and raining most of the time. So, um, you know, it was a little difficult because they had like the 10 people max per facility and stuff like that. So it's, uh, you know, it's just something that's so unique and, you know, it's, it's no different across any profession, really. Everyone's got to make adjustments, but, um, you know, I found a way to make do and uh, there were a lot of pro guys in the area that were all working out together. Uh, we actually had a pretty good crew that was just working out my, uh, my old high school field. And um, so that was, that was, that was fun. You know, actually a couple giants, Pat Rotolo was over there and uh, it was, uh, it was good. So when camp shut down in March, uh, you were in minor league camp. How did you guys kind of like get the news broken? Did, was it like a, like, uh, did you guys go to the field and they, they said something like, okay, we're being shut down? How did that go? Yeah, it was kind of – we were following along with the news and it was – you kind of saw it coming a few days in advance. Um, a couple of my buddies on the – I think the Indians were the first team um, out there that sent guys home. So, um, you know, talking with a few of my buddies on that team, they were like, hey, they all just told us to go home. We don't, they don't know when we're coming back. So, in the back of our minds, we were like, we're getting – this is getting shut down pretty soon. Um, and sure enough, two, three days later, you know, we've, we got the uh, the big group chats and you can leave your stuff here um, and we'll hold on to it. And if you need it to get shipped out later, we'll do it because uh, they didn't want a ton of guys in the clubhouse. And then, you know, it's like everyone's on standby past that point. So it was, uh, I mean, it was, it was a very, it was almost like scary in a sense, kind of like the apocalypse going on or something. It's like, uh, okay, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll go home, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, it did feel like that for a couple months. Um, so you're not in the player pool. Like you mentioned, you're on the East Coast. Uh, your last action uh, in pro baseball was in spring. So how are you kind of spending your time now in the Boston area? Uh, I mean, I'm still doing baseball activity every single day. Uh, the conversations that um, you know I've had with Cap uh, as well as Farhan were basically like, you know, we still need you to stay ready. Um, still need you to – you know, be able to make an impact if if we if we if we decide that we need you. So, um, trying to figure out the best way to do that is uh, it's a little tricky, just because I mean, you know, everyone's you know of that caliber that you'd want to get at bats against for the most part is in a sixty-player pool. So um, it's it's a little difficult, but uh, you know, making do and and getting as much action as possible. So it's um. I don't know. It's just, it's just weird. I don't, it, there's no other way to describe it. It's, it's a strange, strange scenario. So when that, that 60 player pool came out, uh, I was pretty shocked not to see your name. 
Did the Giants organization give you a reason why you weren't on the pool? Yeah. Um, you know, essentially it came down to a numbers game. Um, and, you know, it's I, – I would be naive to think that I could speak to it, you know, publicly right now, that I, that I genuinely have, like, a full understanding of it because I don't. Um, and it's not my place to question it. So, it's it, – for me, the way I look at it is as simple as, like, I'm still employed by the San Francisco Giants. I'm a member of the 40-man roster. My job is to help the Giants win. So only way I can do that is stay ready and, you know, essentially just, you know, be ready for when they want me to come. So uh, it, it doesn't – I'm not really looking for answers anymore at this point. You know, it's kind of just become a thing where it, it is what it is and you got to make do. What do you think about these protocols? I mean, you look around Major League Baseball, when it initially came out where uh, no spitting, no high-fiving, you're seeing guys start to do that a little bit more. But, um, I mean, we saw this situation in Cleveland. Uh, two guys that were big difference makers in that pitching staff got demoted. Um, so what do you think about these protocols? Would it be like – obviously it's different, but would it be uh, something that – you'd have to get, obviously you'd have to get used to it, but what are your thoughts about some of the protocols that major league baseball has implemented? I mean, the way I've looked at it the entire times is, you know, if we're getting paid and we're getting paid pretty well. Um, I don't think it's terribly difficult to stay inside for a little bit and go out there and play. I mean, I'm sitting at home right now, not playing baseball. And, you know, you see that type of thing happen and, you know, it you to a certain extent. Um, so I, like it is what it is. I don't understand. Like it, it's like, this is what the entire world is doing. And, you know, it's just, it is what the situation happens to be. We're in a global pandemic and there are certain things that you have to do to adhere to the protocol. And, and if you can't do it, then, why are you participating? So um, I, I, I think that they're doing what they need to do as far as keeping guys accountable and making sure that players are safe. Um, just because, I mean, the contact tracing too, that if, if guys are going out, like get these teams are traveling city to city across the entire country, it, it would be pretty easy for baseball to spread this. So it's, it's, it's uh, it's essential, and you know, I, I think they're doing a pretty good job with it, from what I can tell. It's aside from, you know, the things that you really can't control. It's sometimes you're gonna, you're gonna get it. You're gonna be asymptomatic and whatnot. But um, again, I'm not an expert in this stuff, so. For sure. So let's get into a little bit about uh, your career path. So your Lexington High School coach Tom O'Grady called you the best hitter he's coached uh, in yeah. his tenure at the school. Um, but you also pitched in high school and, uh, were, were you ever close to pitching beyond high school? Yeah, I think that, uh, probably until the end of my sophomore year, um, you know, in my head, I kind of thought that being a two way in college would be something that, um, I'd really want to pursue. Uh, but you know, I, my back kind of started progressing a little more than, than my arm. And, you know, at that point, if I wanted to be a pitcher, I wasn't a guy that got on the mound and just like was 95 easy. It's like, if I wanted to be a pitcher, I was going to have to commit to it. Um, and I just, I liked hitting so much more. So uh, that was an easy decision for me, but you know, I still miss pitching a lot. <laughs> actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but when we were doing the, uh, when we were working out with all the local pro guys, I actually got on the mound and threw a few lives <laughs> to the guys when we didn't have enough arms. So um, still having fun doing it. 
Yeah, I just I just finished up my high school career myself, and um, I'm probably not playing anymore because of the fact that I enjoyed being a PO. Like you, you just don't okay. hear people like PO. I mean, that was the life. I would I would sit down. I would come in relief, pitch a couple innings, sit back down, and then run. It was it was literally the best life. Um, and I feel like that mentality would get me nowhere. Uh, but and then of course POs have the fake position, so I'd always get stuck at second base and. Yep. But uh, yeah, pitching. Sound like Andy. Sound like Andy Suarez. Andy Suarez became a PO when he was 11 years old. <laughs> I don't think he swung a bat in 20 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When he came up, there was a lot of chatter about how bad of a of a hitter he was. Um, Which, you know what? I'll, I'll defend Andy on record right now. Andy actually has a good swing. I don't know why he got ripped like he did, and he's actually got some of the sneakiest BP pop of anybody in the Giants organization, which you wouldn't expect. So have you seen him go deep, like in BP? Oh, yeah, yeah. I give him all my bats that I don't want. He he hits he hits nukes <laughs> that you don't want. Okay, I like it. <laughs> uh, so then Boston College, of course, I've had a couple college guys on, um, and I like them. I like to give them the opportunity to kind of hype up their alma mater. Uh, so Boston College, how good was that program to you? I mean, DC is is you know one of those special places that I that I've had um you know kind of impact me in my life it's uh it, it's it's tough to put into words honestly just because of how impactful it was and just you know how how special it was to me I learned so much there um both on the field and off the field and uh just the, the family feel that we had while we were there is you know second to none we I played on a lot a lot a lot of different teams and you know, those BC guys are still, I mean, they're, they're my brothers. I mean, I'm with them almost every day now just because they're in the area and whatnot. And uh, I don't know, just in, in what's going on in the program, too. I don't know if you uh, follow along at all, but the new facilities they've built, uh, the Pete Frady Center, is state-of-the-art. It's going to be one of the nicest facilities in Division One baseball. And um, I think with that, we're going to start to keep a lot more of these Northeast guys because, you know, historically, Historically, we've lost a lot of guys, you know, Vanderbilt and, you know, your UNCs and you know, Florida States and stuff like that. But I always felt like that was just because BC's fields were – it was a parking lot. Like, genuinely speaking, we played on a parking lot. After Saturday football games, they'd tailgate on our field the entire day. We'd have Sunday morning practices. We'd have to line up as a squad on the foul pole – on the foul line and – walk down a single file line with trash bags and pick up chicken wings, broken glass, throw up. <laughs> I'm not, it's, it was disgusting. Uh, and then we'd go practice and, you know, the cars had been parked there all night. So it essentially was a, was a concrete field at that point. So doubles in the gap ended up, you know, at Fenway. So it was, a, uh, it was fun. Um, and then past that, I mean, next year they had the potential to have three first round picks. Um, and, you know, one guy in particular that if I could endorse one person um, for the Giants to look at hard uh, would be Sal Frelick. Uh, Sal actually from Lexington as well. Literally went to the same elementary school, middle school, high school, college. Um, and he was just ranked the 10th best college player in the class. Uh, Team USA guy, you know, 6'2 runner. Um, He's a freak. He was a Gatorade football player of the year. He had offers from Notre Dame for football. And he's, he's, he's generously listed at five. He's stuck. 
keep an eye on him. I will keep an eye on him. I'll, I'll put that out there. Um, so you go from picking up vomit to getting your name announced at a podium of a major league baseball draft in 2015. You were the first round pick, uh, 31st overall. So what was that day like? And, you know, getting your name called some people, actually most people that get drafted don't even get that opportunity. So what was that like for you? Come true. I had a lot of my family and friends there that, that night and, uh, you know, we had an idea that the Giants were, were interested. Um, you know, the only thing that kind of left some uncertainty going into that draft for, for me was that I had broken my handmate bone, um, you know, two months prior. And really, I only played, I think, 25 games my junior year. So, you know, all the scouts were going off what they had seen up to April 10th or whatever. So we knew the Giants were, were you know, really, you know, hot after me. Um, but we just weren't sure because they had the 18th pick. 31st pick and then the 61st pick or whatever. And we figured it was slotted somewhere in there and then, you know, sprinkled in between those picks. There were a lot of other teams that said, you know, if you're here, we're going to, we're going to see what we can do. Um, but once they got to like pick, pick like 28 or something like did Kristen Stewart go to the Tigers at like 20. I don't remember. It was Kristen Stewart's pick. I'm pretty sure. Or somebody before that. Um, and my agent called me and he's like, they're going to pick you. And he told me the dollar amount. And I was like, yes, I don't like, yes, just do it. Like, yeah, I don't want to be stressed out anymore. Let's just get this done. Um, and then got it announced on TV. I was sitting there. I knew I was getting picked. I didn't tell my buddies. I didn't tell my family or anything. Um, and, you know, my grandfather was there with me too. We, uh, he passed away shortly after that. So that was, that's something that I always kind of like, I'll look back and watch the videos um, of it for his reaction. So that was, uh, that was really special. Awesome. So how often do you get the, uh, cause I know there's, you were picked with the, the compensation pick for Pablo Sandoval and he went to Boston and you're coming out of Boston. So you get that all the time. Oh my God. Like, all, especially when he came back, it was like, <laughs> it was destiny. I think me and him got to move in together, become roommates. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I get it. I get roommates it all the time. With Suarez? Me and Andy, uh, Duggar, and Slater have lived together for the past four years. So, so that, you know, there's yeah. room for Pablo, I'm sure, huh? There is room for Pablo. He can come join the Animal House. We uh, <laughs> we need another guy. <laughs> uh, so obviously you're tearing it up with the bat in the minor leagues, and you get asked to play left field. And uh, for some guys, that transition, um, you know, to maybe from a fan base's perspective, they see it as seamless and oh, it's easy to move from first base to left field. You know, left field's easy to play. But it's not that. I'm, I'm sure there is difficulty to it. So how did you, you know, what, what time did you have with that transition? For me, the biggest thing was changing my body. Um, when, I, when I got the pro ball and, uh, you know, they told me they were drafting me as a first baseman and, you know, they kind of talked about what um, my trajectory would be, I was like, all right, I could probably – you know, get up to 245, 250, and just basically try to hit the moon and, you know, let that be my focus. Um, but then, you know, once they were like, Chris, we'd like to get you in the outfield. You played in college, and uh, we think you can handle it, and it's going to be the fastest way to get your bat up. Uh, I lost, like, 25 pounds that offseason, and, you know, I've kind of stayed in that, you know, 215 to 225 range uh, ever since then. and. Um, yeah, it's 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 made a big difference. Uh, 
I feel anyways, and just energy level and um, just recovery as well. Your body feels better when you're lighter and you're more flexible and you're, you know, you're eating better. So, uh, you know, if, if nothing else, the, the, uh, the switch to the outfield was a very nice lifestyle change for me too. So I appreciate that to the, yeah, to the old regime for helping me out there. Uh, so, you know, I've talked to a couple of professional baseball players and, you know, they always say death, taxes, and living in the minor leagues. Uh, you mentioned you had roommates, but, you know, some guys have the host families. I'm sure you might have had that at some point. But there's just no money in the minor leagues, and the pay is horrible. Everybody – I've never heard one person say that they've enjoyed the minor league wage. It's just never been said. I don't – you know, Matt Perret, who has played in the Giants organization, is a big advocate for this. Yeah, I was actually on the phone that yesterday, weirdly <laughs> enough. He's a BC guy as well. So how bad – How I mean, how rough – maybe not bad because, I mean, there is a goal in mind, but how rough is the path to the big leagues? Um, the, the path itself, I mean, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's really difficult. Um, but I think that that's an expectation that every player kind of, you know, accepts and, and, and understands when you, when you sign on to play a professional contract, I think what makes it more difficult is, is mindset and, um, you know, not necessarily buying into trusting, you know, the work you're putting in and, you know, the time you're putting in it's, it's not like you get drafted and you're, you're ready to go to the big leagues and you're ready to just live a luxurious lifestyle. At least that's not what I, I've never, I've never felt that way in my life where you just, you step into something and you just, you feel as if you've earned it. Uh, it's it, it, for me, you know, I, I love, you know, task based things where I feel like I have to set, you know, small goals and, you know, I accomplish them. I check them off the list. You feel good about getting that thing done. And for me, every part of the minor leagues was another chance to just develop both, you know, personally on the field, uh, relationship wise. I mean, you get drafted as a 21 year old. I got to the big leagues as a 24 year old. And in those three years, like I grew up a lot, lived in a lot of really tough places. I mean, me, Steven and CJ Hanahosa lived in a two bed extended stay in Richmond, Virginia. And like, we'd alternate who would sleep on the air mattress. It was, it was, you know, a grind and it's 150 degrees every day when you're there. So you never kind of lose, at least I tried to never lose sight of what exactly it was that I was trying to do. And for me, it was, it, it was more than just accomplishing a dream. It was just accomplishing what I felt like I was on, on earth to do. Um, and so in a sense, you almost become possessed and it's like, all the crappy things, you know, start to matter a little less. So if, if, if you really want it, it's not as bad as people make it out to be. So getting to the big leagues, 2018, you get the call. What were you doing? Where were you? We need that story here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So um, I would have been – that November would have been my um, protection for, for, for the uh, 40 man. So – uh, that entire season, it was kind of like an ongoing conversation between, you know, myself, Bobby, and my agent um, regarding, you know, when and if I could impact the ball club because uh, that spring training had been my first big league camp and, you know, I had performed very well. And, uh, you know, we kind of just – I'm staying in contact, essentially. And towards the end of the year – 
I'm honestly felt great about my year. My strikeouts were like through the roof. My walks were down. I was like, I was hitting homers, but I was like, I was kind of like having like an identity crisis as a player where I was just like, what, what am I supposed to be doing here? Am I selling out for power? Am I, am I hitting, trying to hit 300 with, you know, 15 to 20 bombs? Like, what am I looking to do? And um, a lot of that got away. So last week of the season, Bobby Evans comes in um, and, you know, credit to Bobby. He did it every single year. He would drive down from San Francisco and he would meet with all the members of the 40 man, as well as, you know, minor league free agents or anybody else that, uh, you know, had a shot of being a September call-up. Uh, it's, you know, service time based for who goes first in these meetings. And I was obviously the very last meeting. And that year we had a lot, a lot, a lot of like minor league free agent guys. So I'm sitting there waiting. Game time, 7 o'clock. I end up getting into this meeting at like 6.40. And every single player that had gone before me had been told yes or no, essentially. And I get in. Say, hi, Bobby, how are you? You know, Brundy, sitting there, Brundy, what's up? Uh, and, you know, Bobby looks at me and he's just, Chris, uh, we don't know yet. Yeah, like, oh, like, what? <laughs> I've been on the edge for the past six months and you don't know? Um, they're like, you know, we want you to go to Las Vegas this weekend and, you know, we're going to keep an eye on you. And uh, if, if we feel like you're swinging the bat well, then, you know, you're going to put yourself in a position where you might get a chance. Um, so I left the meeting and I was just like, I called my agent. I was like, I don't, I don't think it's happening. Like, I don't know. And he's like, Hey, don't worry about it. Just like go play. And you know, things, things will work out no matter what. And I go out like seventh inning. I like see Kleiner talking to, to tiny and I walk over like, cause they were like, like John kind of like, what's up? Like we just traded McCutcheon to the Yankees. I'm like, we did. Okay, that's interesting. Um, then I go back in the locker room after the game, nothing. And so I had to move out of my apartment that next. We were going on the road. So I pack up the whole place. Um, I load my truck up and I drive the field. We we're going to Vegas the next morning at like, I think it was on the bus ride, like 6 30, 7 a.m. And I get there, you know, not bummed, but kind of just, you know, it's like, eh whatever like I know I'm gonna get a chance if it's not this year it'll be next year and Brundy comes up to me in the clubhouse and he's like, uh, um, you know just want to just want to talk to you you know hopefully hopefully you're not you know stressed from that meeting or anything it's uh you know it's, it's just it's just kind of the way these things go and I was like no I get it I understand he's like all right good because you know we all go through some personal things but you know we collectively we're going to Vegas and I was like yeah, no, I, I, I get it, Brandy. Like, don't worry. Like, once once we get on the field, it's I'm not gonna be thinking about it. Like, I'm, I'm good. It's like, okay, well, I gotta I gotta know that though because we are going to Vegas. Like, yeah, no, I I get that. Like, we we collectively as a team, we are going to Las Vegas. I understand that. He's like, all right, Chris, Shaw, like, we're going to Vegas. I'm like, oh my god. So I, I walk away and I went. I grabbed a coffee and like a donut and like. I remember talking to like some of the guys like, is Brundy all right? Like, what the hell is, why is he keep repeating himself to me right now? And I go out to the bus and Brundy follows me the whole way. And like, it's the same rhetoric in like phrased differently. I'm like, did I like say something in that meeting that made it seem like I just wanted nothing to do with baseball? And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, what is going on? Put my bag on the bus. And like, as I'm stepping to go onto the bus, Brundy just like grabs me. He's like, hey, 
You understand? We are going to Las Vegas. I was like, Brundy. Yes, I understand. He's like, good. Because we, and he points at the whole bus, like, we are going to Las Vegas. You are going to San Francisco. And I like, I broke down crying and uh, I don't know, dude. You can't, you can't. It's hard to just recreate what that feeling is like. It's uh, like I still get goosebumps talking about it. It was, it was really special, and you know, I'll be forever appreciative to him for, you know, feeling that he made it that special for me too. So that was, that was really, really remarkable. For sure, that that's a great story. Um, and then playing in Boston in in uh, September 2019, I know the big story there was was Yastrzemski and uh, the the home run he hit, and then Bochy's uh, Bochy's milestones, and all of this is happening. And meanwhile, there's another kind of like sub headline, and it's you. You're going back home, and um, it's kind of a nice thing for you. So how is that whole series for you to to go back home and and play in front of the the family. That was awesome. Um, you know, I, so many people that I'd come across in my life were there. Uh, and a lot of people that I, you know, hadn't heard from in, in years and not necessarily people I would think would, would be showing up for me. And, uh, you know, it was really cool. Just kind of, it was because I know how special it was for me. I mean, it, like I know what I felt and everything. And it was just, it was incredible. It was a you know, dream come true. But to kind of talk to, to, you know, my friends and, you know, former coaches and, you know, not, not just baseball coaches, like my hockey coaches came and, and uh, you know, guys I played football with growing up. It's just – they all came and they're just like, dude, it's like, like you went to Lexington High School down the street. Like, you're a public school kid and, like, you're playing at Fenway Park tonight. Like, that's incredible. And it, it was – like, every single time I went to Fenway Park growing up, I was like, if I could ever play here, like, I'd die. Like, this is, this is my dream, and I got to do it. And it's something that, you know, nobody can ever take from me, and I'll cherish it for the rest of my life. So then you say goodbye, obviously, you guys as a collective group say goodbye to Bruce Bochy. Gabe Kapler gets hired, and it's kind of like two different baseball minds. You got one guy that completely old school, then Kapler, you know, platoon shifts, um, all of this. So what's kind of the biggest difference between playing for a guy like Bochy and you know, playing for a guy like Kapler, what have you noticed? Um, I don't know that I can answer that because I haven't had um, enough time with Cap to to yeah. to really know his style. Um, I had like ten at bats during spring training, so um, it's uh, what I can say though is that I respect the hell out of how transparent Cap has been um, with everybody and and everything. Like legitimately anything I want to ask him, he answers it. And you know we've had we've had tough conversations too. And like I'm the type of person that if if I feel like you're withholding something because you, you you're worried about a reaction or you're worried about something that you think that I'm feeling, it's like you're creating something that doesn't exist. And I don't feel like that's fair. With Cap, that never happens. He is so so clear and just just honest with me and you know that's something that I really really respect and Boach was the exact same way um but with Boach it was just a much more uh, black and white type conversation 
and you know there's appreciation for both types of managers and um yeah i'm very lucky to be able to to uh to know the two of them personally and you know to have that type of experience and you know hopefully um yeah i can i can learn more about you know caps managing style with playing under him um and you know that's that's what i what i'm still working for you know that's why you still wake up every day go to the cage go to the gym and, and keep going but um you know two very different managers but at the same time uh like their best characteristics kind of overlap so um one you know big attribute you have is obviously your power from the left side um and you know the giants play at oracle park and you know there's it's not friendly at all. I know they, they did some stuff with the configurations still, though, not the most friendly ballpark. Um, so you're taking BP, you know, obviously it's easier to hit the ball down the line. It's, I think it's one of the shorter right fields down the line in the national league, but there's the wall, you know, then there's 421 in, in triples alley. So, you know, you gotta, it's really hard to stay consistent at Oracle park. So what is kind of your approach been maybe in batting practice you've taken there what is it like hitting at Oracle Park? Well, Oracle is uh, is interesting for me because when I – my typical approach is, is center field, left center. Um, keeps me you – know, it, it keeps my lanes and my direction, well, um, you know, correct and uh, ultimately helps me drive the ball more. Um, with Oracle, though, uh, you know, I think if you were watching the, the broadcast last night, Barry Bonds was talking for a little bit about um, a trick that he <laughs> didn't want to share. And, uh, you know, it's – I don't know that necessarily it's, it's a trick as much as it's something that, you know, guys talk about fairly frequently. And for me, it was something that really helped. Um, we just talked about shifting center field and, you know, shifting your sights. So, for me, what I would do – and it's different for every other guy, like different ballparks – different things you want to just make you know you want to make it so that you're seeing the ball as well as you can and you feel like you can drive it as well as you can so I would take center field and I would move it over to probably like where the edge of the bullpens are now and that's why I would kind of set my sights that was center 30 feet foul was the foul pole down the line and worked like that um so I've had a ton of at bats at AT&T or Oracle, but in batting practice and stuff like that, that's when once I made that adjustment, that's when like the splash balls during BP were just becoming like automatic. And when I first got up, it was like I felt like I couldn't hit a ball out to right field. I was like, "What the heck is going on? I, this is my this is my zone. Like I, I can't get in there." Um, but it was as simple as shifting your sights. So. It's almost like golf, kind of in that in that regard. Like little little tiny things you can you can fix can just make the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. Speaking of adjustments, um, every big power left-handed bat. There's a couple exceptions. You guys have to deal with the shifts, and um, it. I mean, a lot of it is is you know the the percentages and stuff. Uh, so I'm sure you've gotten so used to the shift. Um, what is your kind of philosophy about how they shift you towards the right side of the field? Um, so I'd say 90% of the time I can bank on they're going to try and bust me hard in and soft away. And, 
you know, when that happens, it's like, okay, so many people say like, all right, well then you got that entire left side of the field. Just, just hit it to the left side of the field. It's like, yeah, sure. I, if, if, if I got a fastball on the outside corner, you got it. Like snap of the fingers done. Um, but guess what? I'm getting 95 up and in and I'm getting a changeup that's spinning away from me the other way. So the way I look at that is, you know, if you're going to beat us, you're going to beat us over the fence. And the other two outcomes are going to be, we're going to either walk you, you're going to give into our thing, you're going to ground out, or it's going to be a punch. So you just really got to stick to your game. And for me, that is finding a pitch that I think I can smash. And if they throw it inside and it's, it's down a little bit, then I'm not trying to hit that ball to left field. I'm trying to hit that in the bullpen to right. So it, you, know, you can't really change your game too much. But you got to be smart. You got to understand why they're shifting you. Like, what are they looking to accomplish here? And some teams will shift you and think that you're so domed up that they can get away with just fastballs the other way. But that's, that's where your scouting reports come into play, and that's where, you know, the advanced analytics and stuff can kind of help. And I've also seen guys come up from the minor leagues and – um, you know, the opposing team doesn't have a full, complete scouting report on the guy, but they'll shift anyways, just because he looks like a big left-handed hitter who hits to the pole side. So it's it's a little bit interesting. Um, yeah. So three zero counts, and this is something that I want to bring up because it's a big commodity in baseball right now. Fernando Tatis Jr., arguably the best player in the National League right now. Um, Swing at a 3-0 pitch and hit a grand slam, up seven runs. And a lot of, you know, the Rangers took offense to it. Even his own manager said, you know, hey, we got to talk to him. My philosophy is this, you know, if if, <laughs> if you don't want to give up a 3-0 bomb, you know, don't get yourself on the mound. If you're a pitcher, don't get into a fastball count in the first place. Um, and that's kind of been kind of the uh, – the response that a lot of people have had. So what's your thoughts on just this entire situation? I mean, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Like what I get, I get to three Oh, so here, here goes, but you can groove this fastball down the middle and then you can throw your backdoor slider. You go to three, two, and then I'm just two strike count again. What? what? Like, dude, this is how you get paid. This is how you stay. Like getting yourself into leverage counts, getting yourself into a spot with runners in scoring position. Like you get the bases loaded with three Oh, like, and you throw him a cookie. Which, like, is, is he supposed to feel bad for you? Like, hit the ball to the moon, Fernando. Good job. Like, I remember in, when I got called up, uh, we were playing the Cardinals, and it, Dakota Hudson was pitching, and I went in to pinch hit um, late in the game, and I got to a 3-0 count. And, like, a week before that, because Brundy had just been brought up to to manage along with Boach for the September – um, they were talking about 3-0. And that season, weirdly enough, I was like four for four in 3-0 counts with four home runs when I swung. Wow. So I get to a 3-0 count with Hudson on the mound. And Dakota Hudson throws like 95-mile-hour screwballs. Like his two-seam moves like a lefty slider. And not seeing him great. And I'm like, you know what? He's he's missing arm side a ton. I don't I don't feel truly comfortable like letting it fly here because I looked down and uh, you know Wotus was giving me was giving me the you know the green light and I took and he, and it was it was groove fastball. It was down the middle. And then next pitch he walked me. And then you know next batter flew out or whatever. I think it was a runner on second base. Um, so we ended up scoring there. And I remember going in after the inning and sitting on the bench and Boach coming up to me. He's like Chris. 
like you're in the game because you can change the game with one swing of the bat. Like we want you taking that chance there. And Boach is as old school as old school gets in a lot of senses. So the Frio thing, obviously the, the Tati's thing's a little different because it was just the, the game circumstance that kind of, you know, brought everybody's, uh, I don't know, emotions into it more, more than it otherwise would have been. But to me, if you're, a, if you're a hitter's count, like you're a hitter. You're not, you're not out there worried about the pitcher's feelings or worried about, you know, anything else because he's going to step on your throat the second he gets the chance. Exactly. I said the other day, there's no free card. There's no free spot on the bingo card. Um, and, and you would think that, yeah. you know, up seven runs, that's an even more comfortable, you know, time to swing 3-0 because if you're down three runs going into the eighth looking for base runners and then you ground into a double play, I mean, you're going to – get pulled out of the game. So I feel like right. seven, nothing would be a more appropriate time to do it. No, circumstance dictates everything. And it's the same. It's like if he had swung there three and he had rolled out over, it honestly wouldn't matter because they're mm-hmm. up seven, but like exactly. it's a situation where you get in like a two O count even, and you know, it might be two outs and you get a two seam low and away and you, and you swing at it and you ground out. It's like, like, what are you doing? Like mm-hmm. you're in these counts. If it's perfect, go, like go. And so uh, I, I just feel like when we get talking about these unwritten rules, it's like we forget we're playing baseball. It's what do you mean? Like just the rest of the game doesn't like exist. You're just gonna forget that he got to three zero, and now he's got to just give this guy the courtesy to get back on the count. Like no, exactly. Might as well put a mercy rule in in, in the game. <laughs> uh, so a couple more things for you here. Uh, I actually asked around to see if anybody. I put on the socials to see if anybody wanted to ask you a question. Uh, JJ wants to know if there's any tips you have for young players. Ooh. Um, like little league age or? Uh, I think he's in high school. Yeah. In high school? I think the biggest thing, and it's something that I've always struggled with, is kind of just, you know, not getting ahead of yourself. Just, just, you know, be where your feet are and just enjoy every second of it. Um, it's like we were talking about earlier with the minor leagues and, and maintaining a mindset of just buying in and understanding that, you know, the work is what gets you there. It's, you know, you can be, you can have wishful thinking and you can have goals and you can visualize and everything, but it's like, you got to remain in reality as well. And you have to just kind of focus on getting better every single day. So. For me now, my biggest focus is making sure I'm enjoying what I'm doing and making sure the work that I'm doing is focused and efficient because if I'm just in there wasting time, you know, dilly-dallying, it's just, it's, uh, it's ineffective. So just enjoy yourself and, uh, you know, just, just, just be patient. And then Roman wants to know, how do you stay in a big league mindset when you're constantly kind of being shifted from AAA to the big leagues? Uh, I would argue that there, the, the the mindset thing, it it wouldn't matter if I was a bank teller, if I was a, you know, construction worker or a big leaguer. It's like it's 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 a success mindset, and it's it's a it's a drive. It, it I want to I want to do well in anything I do. So when I'm in the minor leagues, I want to I want to I want to kill it. If I'm in the big leagues, I want to kill it. Um, there, there, the mindset doesn't change a whole lot. I don't think it's, 
if anything, what you have to kind of manage is like emotional, you know, letdown or whatever for, you know, disappointments and stuff like that, which is, you know, different. And that's something that, you know, you acquire that skill over time. You can't, you don't know how to do it unless you've gone through it is kind of the way I look at a lot of things. So keeping that open mindset and just knowing that um, as bad as, you know, going up and down is like you're gaining experience and you're learning how to deal with it again. So, you know, every time it happens, hopefully it doesn't happen a lot, but you know, when it does happen, it's not the end of the world every time it's all right, time to reset and, you know, kind of figure out what I got to do again and get back up and keep that same mentality of I'm just going to kill it. All right. What I got one more thing for you. And, um, this was requested here. Um, so I don't know if you've been across this part of Twitter, but there's a section of baseball Twitter and giants Twitter. Uh, and I'm sure they've tagged you in some of this stuff, but, and and they, they, (laughs) they're like younger on the younger side of things and they're all energetic and stuff. Uh, so I got a ton of requests just randomly asking you, do you eat mac and cheese with a fork or a spoon? And like, they, they ask a lot of those questions. So you're not the only one that's going to get this. So yeah, what do you, no, how do you eat your mac and cheese? You know what? It's like as simple of a question as it is. I know how divisive this could become, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, I am, I, I would, I don't eat a ton of mac and cheese, but if I'm eating mac and cheese, it's usually as a side for something that requires a fork. So I think fork. But maybe if it's just mac and cheese on its own, I might have a spoon. I'm not sure. So mac and cheese was more of the first baseman's diet than the left fielder's diet. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. We, if you asked me three years ago, I'd probably have a, a very, very sure answer for that one. That's awesome. All right, Chris, thanks for joining us. You guys can follow Chris on Instagram and Twitter at shawsum 24 which is the greatest username ever. Um, you guys could follow us on on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. Uh, Chris, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, of course, dude. Thank you guys for listening. Subscribe, you know, like, do all those things, and have a great day.